All right. Good morning. morning. None of that happened. (laughs) So as I said, we're going to start with a question. Can our loved ones in heaven see us? Can people in heaven look down on us on earth and see what we're doing? Now, this was a very sincere question. And I'm not the only pastor that has been asked this. Uh, when I Googled this, actually, I think I duck duck goaded it. Um, many pastors have been asked this question. Many of us have loved ones in heaven, and we'd like to know, can they see us? Do they know what is going on here on earth? So are you ready for the answer? We don't know for sure. <laughs> Theologians are all over the map. Some say definitely no, some say definitely yes, but I'm going to tell you what I personally believe, and I'll try to back it up a little bit. So personally, I lean toward yes, that they can, that the saints in heaven can see us and are aware of us on earth, and I believe that for several reasons. First, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6, in chapter 18, even chapter 19, speak about some knowledge of events that are happening on earth by the saints in heaven. In other words, the saints in heaven are stating things that are happening on earth. For instance, the martyrs in heaven know that God hasn't yet brought judgment on their persecutors. They know that. When Babylon is brought down, an angel in heaven refers to the events happening on earth and speaks of them to people living in heaven. So the people know when Babylon falls. And also the inhabitants in heaven throughout Revelation praise God for very specific events of judgment on earth. So they know there's things going on. Secondly, our Heavenly Father knows when a sparrow falls. He knows every hair of our head and is watching. And there is rejoicing in heaven... When someone is saved. So people in heaven know when someone gets saved. Also, if the sovereign God has his attention on earth, why wouldn't the attention of his people also be focused here as well? Because what's important to God will be important to the people of God in heaven. And finally, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, it states that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, the word witness can mean testimony, but in context, it appears that the people in heaven are watching us run our race. So that's why I believe that the people in heaven, yes, are aware of what's going on down here. And this leads us into the sermon, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And you'll recognize a verse from this passage since I just quoted it. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. It starts out, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I wanted to preach from this passage today because I have talked to many saints lately who are weary. They're tired. You know, I know there are days when all I could do is put one foot in front of another. I was just that exhausted, tired, weary, faint-hearted. So this sermon today is for fellow Christian pilgrims who are weary, who need a word of comfort, of hope, of encouragement. So in this passage, it begins with, therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, when a sentence begins with, therefore, we need to go back and look at what the author is referencing. He's saying That because of what I wrote earlier, we should now do something or believe something. So we need to go back and see what the author has talked about to know why or what he's exhorting us to do. So in this case, we need to go back to chapter 11 of Hebrews and take a quick glance at what has been said. Now in chapter 11 begins with what is probably one of the best known verses in Hebrews, if not the New Testament. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, the term faith is a very important word in the Bible, but it appears over 200 times in the New Testament. 200 times. And in chapter 11 in Hebrews, is sometimes referred to as the faith chapter. The word faith, or variations of the word faith, are used over 20 times in just this chapter. In other words, 10% of the uses of the word faith in the New Testament are found in this one chapter. So it is very safe to assume that the central theme of this chapter, and really the whole book of Hebrews, is faith. And so the author begins with what faith is before going on to show examples of faith in action. Now, faith is the assurance Of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Faith is determined by hope. It is a trust in God and his promises. This understanding of faith fits well with the rest of the book of Hebrews where faith is associated with perseverance. It is a faith characterized by firmness, reliability, and steadfastness. Now, this definition of faith in Hebrews, it's not a formal dictionary definition, nor is it exhaustive in its scope. But every word has been very carefully chosen to draw attention to a characteristic of faith that would have particular relevance to its original readers. Those readers would have been wavering in their faith because of persecution and trials. These original readers or hearers are tired. They are weary. 
They are faint-hearted. Faint-hearted meaning they're scared. They're fearful. This is a group of people, a church that has been beaten down by life, and they are losing hope. So the author of Hebrews is reminding them to keep the faith, to hang on, to persevere. And the two aspects of faith that the author wanted to emphasize to this group of believers is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The first aspect focuses on hope, something desperately needed both then and now. Hope by nature focuses on the future. But it is objective. It is an assurance that what we, what we believe, that it will happen. Faith means that our hope is a reality. We have an assurance that what we hope for is true. It is a reality to be believed. It is as true as if it has already happened. It is the assurance of things hoped for. The second aspect focuses on the fact that faith demonstrates the existence of a reality that cannot be perceived through our senses. We cannot see it even though it is real. This conviction of what is true then leads to action. Even though we cannot see it, it's true. The hope that we have is real even if our senses cannot perceive it. So because we have faith... Even though we cannot see the hope we have, we act. We live out our faith. There's an old saying, maybe you've heard it, that goes, seeing is believing. But with faith and hope, that saying gets turned around. Believing is seen. The men and women mentioned later in this chapter had faith. These saints had nothing but the promises of God to rest upon without any visible evidence that these promises would ever be fulfilled. And yet, these promises meant so much to them that the whole course of their lives was lived in light of these promises. They lived by faith. They had assurance. They had conviction. By faith they believed. By faith they hoped. By faith they saw a future reality. Every step that they took, every day of their lives, was lived in light of the promises of God. Even though not visible, they knew and they were assured. They lived as if the promise was already a reality. Because to them, it was a reality. They were convinced of it. They were unwavering. They had the assurance of things hoped for. They had the conviction of things not seen. And this faithfulness was an anchor for them. And our faith is an anchor for us. And so from chapter 11, we're going to jump back to chapter 6 in Hebrews. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do, as it says in verse 10. And in verse 11, it says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham... 
Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in to the inner place behind the curtain. So the author writes in chapter 6, we desire each one of you, that's each of us here today, each of us at home, for each one of us this was written. The author desires that each of us have the full assurance of hope until the end. And we can have the full assurance of hope because of two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. The promise of God and God's oath. So why do we have these two irre irre yeah, irrevocable facts? Because in the Old Testament, two witnesses were required by law. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. So God, by confirming his promise with an oath, has set up the two witnesses. And so this whole section of chapter 6 is a legal document. The author uses technical, legal language. He talks about an oath. He talks about a legal dispute. He, he swears about the things that are going to happen. He guarantees an oath. He furnishes a guarantee. There's proof. There's confirmation. There's irrevocable, as in like a will and a contract. There are heirs. All of this legal language adds considerable force to what the author is saying. This is a legal contract between God and us. One that cannot be broken. And this contract, this legal document of a promise of God gives us hope because it's unchangeable. And this can help us hold fast to the hope set before us because this promise holds like an anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor. An anchor holds the boat. And anchors are especially meant for rough seas and for rough times. And so no matter how rough the seas of our life get, our anchor holds. And so we're to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to continue to hold fast to the hope set before us because we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Our anchor holds because our God promised. And this promise is unchangeable. Our anchor holds. Amen? Therefore, 
because our anchor holds and because the anchor is held for those who have gone before us, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So who has gone before us? Who is the cloud of witnesses? Well, some of them are found in chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. By faith, Joseph, when dying, I'm sorry, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, Rehab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. So since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is an amazing chapter because of when it was written. At this time, no Greek thinking person would write about heroes of the faith to, intimidate, to imitate. Because the Greeks, faith was regarded as a state of mind characteristic of the uneducated. The willingness of Christians to suffer for faith astonished their contemporary pagan observers. Do you see any connection between the Greeks and with unbelievers today? The author gives example after example of men and women who exemplify faith. Men and women who have been attested or approved by God for their faith. Over and over again, we hear these words. By faith, by faith, by faith, they lived, they died by faith. And these men and women are part of the great cloud of witnesses. But the author hints 
that the list of witnesses could go on. Because he says, what more shall I say? Well, we could say, how about Paul? How about Peter or John or James or Barnabas or Timothy? To name a few other saints from the Bible. Or we could list other witnesses. Martin Luther, John Bunyan, Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Spurgeon, Fanny Crosby. How about John Knox or John Calvin, William Carey? How about Judson, Evangeline Booth, George Mueller, Lottie Moon, Susan B. Anthony, Hudson Taylor? How about Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Amy Carmichael, Corey Tenboom? How about Moody or C.S. Lewis? Billy Graham. But why stop there? What about Jim Nolt? Mike Ranson? Muriel Berzikian? And our list of CNBC saints could go on. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the saints who had gone before. So in the New Testament and throughout the church age, a witness is never merely a passive spectator, but an active participant who confirms and attests the truth as a confessing witness. Their lives provide evidence for subsequent generations of the possibilities of faith. Their lives speak with a living voice to believers of all ages. Their example should inspire us to heroic Christian faith. And because of this, we're called to action. We have a great cloud of witnesses whose faith lives on to encourage and to exhort us. So let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the author here is using a running metaphor of a long-distance race. We are in a race, and this very special crowd is cheering us on, exhorting us by their lives to run and run well, to finish the race. They're watching, exhorting us by their lives to run the race. Now, a long time ago, and very, very far away... I was on my school's track team. I ran the mile. Back then, that was the farthest distance that you could run in track. And the mile was usually run last. All the other athletes had participated and finished their race. And so when my race began, all my teammates... Those athletes who had already finished their race would line the track to exhort me and my teammates. The gun would sound and we would run and they would cheer us on. Sometimes they would run alongside and encourage us to pick up our pace. They would be with us clapping and yelling. Keep running. Keep running. They had gone before. They had finished their race. And now they were exhorting us to run our race well. And the closer we got to the finish line, the louder they got 
doing all they could to help us finish well. Can you hear them? Can you hear this great cloud of witnesses before us, men and women who have finished their race, who have run well, exhorting and encouraging us to finish well? Can you hear them, their lives of faithfulness, their testimony, calling us to finish the race that is set before us? Can you hear them letting us know that what we are experiencing, no matter how hard, how tough, it is worth the prize? Can you hear them offering hope and encouragement? Can you hear them just as the blood of Abel cried out so their lives continue to cry out to us today? Can you hear them? Can you hear Abraham, Moses, Rahab, and Gideon? Can you hear Paul, Peter, James, and John? Can you hear Luther, Wesley, Edwards, and Spurgeon? Can you hear Corey Tenboom, Amy Carmichael? Can you hear Jim Nolt and Mike Granson and Muriel Brzezikian? We are not alone. There is a great cloud of witnesses. We are never alone. And just as they did before us, we are also to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. When you run a long-distance race, there is no excess thing being carried. Now, I'm glad I ran track when I did, because in the early athletic contest, contest in Greece and Rome, the runners removed all their clothing before running. I am so glad. <laughs> but nothing could impede them. They lay aside everything so they could run the race well. And the particular clothing that has been referred to in this passage that's labeled as excess is the long, heavy robe that was often worn. No one runs with a heavy robe. So the author is using this robe as a metaphor for sin and for vices. We are to take off that which is hindering us. So what sin do we need to lay aside today? What is holding us back? But even more than just sin, the author uses the word every. He wants us to lay aside anything and everything that would interfere with our race of faith. It must be let go, even if it might be good. Nothing is to stand in our way of finishing the race. We are to have nothing in our life that will distract us, causing us to look away when we should be fixing our eyes upon Jesus. So what do we need to lay aside? Because faith is a race of endurance. 
You know, it's easy to become discouraged, to become weary, to lose heart. There must be firm resolve to finish the contest and to cross the finish line despite hardship, exhaustion, and pain. When you run a race, the runner keeps his eyes focused on what is ahead, on a point that is his goal. It's always ahead. The runner is always looking ahead. And for us as Christians, that point of focus is Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus as we run our race. The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the forerunner. He has gone before us. He's the swiftest runner. He's broken away from the pack to cross the finish line first. And now we must follow him to finish the race. Jesus is the author, the champion. One translation reads, Jesus, the champion in the exercise of faith and the one who brought faith to complete expression. Another translation reads, Jesus, the pioneer of faith and the one who has finished the course. Our faith depends upon Jesus from start to finish. He himself has run the race to a triumphant finish. Jesus has already blazed the trail of faith. Jesus has gone before. It was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. See Jude for that reference. Jesus who accompanied and nourished the Israelites in the wilderness. See Paul. Jesus has always led the people of God from earliest times along the path of faith. Jesus is a personal example for us. And not only is he an example, he's the perfect example. Faith reached perfection in him. He trusted in God, they said, as they stood by his cross. And that was truer than they knew. Jesus' whole life was characterized by unbroken and unquestioning faith in his heavenly Father, never more so than when he committed himself to his Father's hands for the ordeal of the cross. Jesus endured the cross, despised the, the disgrace. To die by crucifixion was to plumb the lowest depths of disgrace. It was a punishment reserved only for those who were deemed most unfit to live. It was for slaves and criminals. The subhumans. So the pioneer of salvation. He disregarded the shame as something not worthy to be taken into account. When it was a question of his obedience to the will of God. And so Jesus brought faith to perfection by his endurance on the cross. And he has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him of doing God's will and being exalted is not something for himself alone, but something to be shared with those for whom he died as sacrifice. It's also for us. Jesus reached the goal first, but others, those of us who believe, will share it with him. Jesus is our supreme 
inspirer of faith. Jesus finished the race on the cross. It is finished. And that is why he can sit down now at the right hand of the throne of God. And it's why the author of Hebrews can say, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Jesus. Nothing that we will ever go through can compare to what Jesus went through. But he finished the race. He won the victory. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The perfect example of faith. We are so easily distracted. We fix our eyes on so many other things. We look to government or political parties instead of Jesus and we're distracted. We look at our temporary inconveniences like masks and we're distracted. We look to certain people, writers or leaders or even movements and we are distracted. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness to see? There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What things in our life need to grow dim so that we can focus on Jesus? Does politics need to grow dim? Does news or commentators need to dim? Does our anxiousness over wearing or not wearing a mask need to grow dim? Does the general noise and confusion of the world need to grow dim? Then turn your eyes off of them and turn your eyes upon Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely every weight and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted so do not grow weary, because faith is the assurance, the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. 
our faith in Jesus is an anchor. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Our anchor holds. Are the winds blowing in your life? You have an anchor. Are you having troubles, griefs, temptations, and storms in your life? You have an anchor that will hold. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run the race. Hold fast to the hope set before us, because we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Amen. Amen. Thank you.